Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, proclaimed that the kingdom of God is near, and so we should repent. So we ask you to teach us to live lives of repentance, looking to you as our help, as our forgiveness and our hope and our joy, turning away from sin to follow you and your holy will, and finding peace and the promise that because of your Son, you always approach us with grace and mercy and forgiveness. So now as we study your word, teach us to rejoice in the gifts of the kingdom of heaven. Come to us in our Savior Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so um, today we are going to continue in John 6, right? Or at least we'll read it and then we'll do whatever we do. So John 6. This is the discourse of the bread of life. So we'll continue. Let's just read. John 6, verses 32 through 40. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay, thank you very much. All right, so we've gone over some of this already. What's going on? What? Okay. I was getting getting advice from the... Yeah. Okay. So, um, number one, how is Jesus teaching them to understand the events of the Old Testament? The Old Testament is about him. Now, this is this is important. Obviously, this we've been doing this through the whole Gospel of John, and this is the entire point of the New Testament: is that the Old Testament is really written about Jesus. So the right way to read the Old Testament is to read the entire Old Testament as pointing us toward God's fulfillment of all of his promises in Jesus Christ. Okay? So, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So 2 Corinthians, we're in John. you got to go Acts and then... Romans, and then 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, okay? So Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. This is a good verse to have in your head as a little summary of, of how the Bible works. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. God for his glory. 
Okay, so all the promises that God has made, no matter what they are, they are kept in Jesus Christ. Okay? In the NIV, it actually says it this way. It says, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so in him, the Amen is spoken to the glory of God. Okay? So this idea is that all the stuff that God said he's going to do for his people, it's fulfilled in Jesus. Okay? Does that make sense? So what, what John is saying, and he's going back and he's saying, that they're like, yeah, this man in the desert stuff. He's like, yeah, that's nice, but that's not really what happened. Is he saying the Old Testament isn't true? No. Is he saying Moses wasn't a real person? No. Is he saying there wasn't really manna? No. See, he's not denying the validity of the Old Testament. He's not denying the events of the Old Testament. He's showing them a further fulfillment, a real fulfillment of these events. So he's teaching them to see all the stuff in the Old Testament as prophecies. They're actually prophecies. Okay? They're, they're pointing ahead toward a fulfillment. Okay, and you all, I've told you this, this before, but Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But it, in Greek, it really reads like this. It says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the beginning and the goal of faith. Okay, and the point is that Jesus is the goal He's the goal. He's the thing that everything's been pointing toward. Okay? So goal meaning what you're trying to get to. So God's purposes are fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus. Okay? That's how he's getting us to see the Old Testament. So when you read the stories of David, what are you actually reading about? Jesus, as the son of David, will be a greater fulfillment of all these promises. So you read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, your son will sit on the throne forever. Right? Promise to David. Well, who is David's son who sits on the throne? Solomon. Right? That's the next, that's, read the next part of the book. They talk about Solomon becoming David's son that sits on the throne. And we go, huh, that's interesting. But there's a greater fulfillment of that in Jesus, who is the proper son of David in the New Testament. Okay, so we're not denying the Old Testament. It all happened just as it says it did. It's all true, but there's a greater fulfillment in Jesus. Okay, any questions on that or thoughts? Stunned in the silence. I like it. Great. Okay, try and move along. Yeah, we're trying to get through number two. So number two. So then who is Jesus? He's the bread of life. Okay, so remember, we've talked about this before. There are these I am statements in, in John where, did we do this last time? There were seven I am statements in John. Did we talk about this? Yes. Okay, good. So we have the I am statements so there are two different kinds of I am statements in John. One where he just says, I am, and then just leaves it hanging there. And the other where he says, I am something, right? So this is, I am the bread of life. Okay, and then you have, I am, you have, not yet. Next one is, I am the light of the world. 
and then I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, and life, I am the true vine. Okay? So those I am statements, and what these are, is these are, these are talking about things from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in Jesus, in his person, who he is, and what he does. So he is actually the bread that comes down from heaven. Okay? Why did the Israelites need bread? Because they were, you know, hungry is nice, but they were starving. They were going to die. So God gave them heavenly bread to give them life. Okay, this is the issue. It's not just like we're going to watch the Super Bowl. It'd be nice to order a pizza. No, this is I am going to die if I don't get food. So God gives them food so they don't die. So Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. Okay, I am the bread who gives life. So if you want to live, you have to eat of Jesus. That's exactly right. The word manna means, what is this? That's actually what the word means. Manna means, what is that? It was, it's, de- it's, it's described as being like coriander seed, which is kind of weird. Flaky, kind of, kind of a flaky, crusty thing. It looked like dew on the ground that had kind of solidified and they'd go out and gather it and they could eat it like bread. So you're like, what's for dinner? Manna? What is that? Exactly. Eat. You know, and they did that for 40 years. So it was just kind of flaky, bready kind of substance. They called it bread. So they were, there was a gluten-free field over there. <laughs> you know, gluten-free manna. High five. Yeah, high five. There was an organic manna field over here that some people went to. Low-carb manna over there. You're out of your mind is what they're thinking. They're thinking you're either blaspheming or you're out of your mind because you can't claim these things. And the apostles, the followers were the same thing. And they're looking at the apostles going, you believe this stuff? And they're going, I don't understand what he's talking about. But yes. So in conjunction with this, I'm thinking about Saul, yeah. the great persecutor. Yeah. Who's hearing all this? And you're wondering, why are we supposed to pray now for people to be like converted like Saul wasn't Paul? Probably not exactly like that, but yeah. We don't want them killing Christians first and then being converted. We just skip the killing Christians part, but yes, that's exactly right. So the word, yeah, so so that's number three. We'll get to number that number three, okay? So where were we going? Bread of life, manna. Hunger, thirst. Okay, so the whole idea is if you want to live, you have to eat Jesus. Okay, now how do you eat Jesus? Okay, one place we receive this is the Lord's Supper, but how do you eat Jesus? 
overall? Through the word, which gives you faith, okay? So the way you eat this bread of life is you believe in Jesus, okay? The way you eat Jesus is you believe in him. How are you a sheep of the good shepherd? You don't actually become, you don't get wool and put it on and kind of wander around. That's not how you become a sheep. How are you a sheep of the good shepherd? You believe in him. How do you go through the gate that is Jesus? You believe in him. How do you follow the way, the truth, and the life? You believe in him. How do you become attached to the vine, the true vine of the Father? You believe in him. Okay? So this is the teaching. It's that the way you eat is that you believe in Jesus. Okay? You trust that he is who he says he is and that in him God's will is fulfilled. So if you want God's will, which is life, if you want life, you have to be attached to Jesus. How do you get attached to Jesus? The answer is believe in him. And that's it. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to do, go to last supper. Right. You don't have to do any of that stuff. You just believe in Jesus. Now, how do you believe in Jesus? You've got to be in church to hear the word and receive the Lord's Supper. I mean, you, can't, you can't say, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not going to do any of the stuff that Jesus does. Right? It doesn't work. And this is the problem. People say, oh, great. It's believing in Jesus. Therefore, that's separate from going to church or receiving. No, no, no. Believing in Jesus is receiving his word. Receiving the sacraments. Right? Because even the demons believe. Right. No, believing is not acknowledging. That's what James is getting at. James is saying, is it saving faith to simply acknowledge who Jesus legitimately claims to be? That's not faith. No. Faith is, what does Luther teach us? Forgiveness of sins is for you. Faith grasps that and says, in Christ, God is forgiving my sins. Right? And so what did Pastor talk about today in his sermon? That part of this is also then to learn to repent. You don't just get to say, well, I just want the forgiveness part, therefore I can do whatever I want. No. Part of faith is repenting of my sins and coming before God and saying, I'm wrong. You're right. I'm living contrary to your will. And that means one of us needs to change our ways. And it ain't God. Right? See, this is the problem. When people don't repent of their sins, what are they saying to God? One of us has to change and it ain't me. So what am I going to do? I'm going to change God to conform to my way of living. Well, that's called unrepentant sin. Repentant sin is one of us has got to change and it ain't God, it's me. Does that make sense? That's the difference between repentance and unrepentance. Good. <laughs> because you're saying, I have to believe. Yep, you do. But at the same time, the belief is not me believing. 
God working through the Holy Spirit. Oh, stop it. <laughs> All that the Father gives me. Who gives you your faith? Who gives you your faith? The Father. How does he do it? Through the Holy Spirit. Okay? So this faith that I have to have in order to, to be in Christ is also not something that I look here to find. It's something I, I trust in Christ to give me according to the Father's will by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is why, where am I every Sunday? Where his word is, where the sacraments are. Because that's how God said, I will give this to you. We say, okay, great. I could use some. If we had church every day, guess where I'd be every day? Because guess what I could use every day? Right? And this is, this is exactly what we keep doing. And that we're going to read this as Jesus goes. He's going to keep explaining this to us. Is that anyone who is with Jesus is there because the Father has put him there. He's put Jesus there. And he's put all the people who believe in Jesus there with Jesus. It's all the Father's doing. Okay? <clears throat> Any other questions? Don't worry, we have the same question again in a couple lines. Who is Jesus? We'll do it again. You said there are how many I am statements? Well, there are seven-ish. <clears throat> Ish. I, I suppose that's also a number that would be significant. Yeah, so there's seven I am statements. Um, there are seven I am statements. There are seven signs in John's gospel. So seven is an important number. In the Bible, well, in all of, all of creation, seven's a very important number, right? Four-thirds is an important ratio, all these things. So seven is just a, a very important number. Um, it's the number of completeness. It's the number of perfection. Twelve is a big number, right? Twelve is a very important number. So you have twelve tribes, twelve apostles, I honestly always forget them. I always forget one. It's like it's like the sixty parts of the catechism. You're like, is it? Oh, what, which one did I forget? Okay, so you have. You have well, yeah. You have the I am's without anything on the end, right? You can find those throughout. And then you have, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Thank you. That's what I skipped. John 11. I knew there was one in John 11. So, okay, so let's do them in order. We'll do them in order. And we'll say the chapters. John 6, I am the bread of life. John 8, I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the gate. And I am the good shepherd. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15, I am the true vine. Did you get all that? John 6, I am the bread of life. If I just had somewhere to write this down. <laughs> 6, bread of life. <clears throat> 8, light of the world. <laughs> 
10 gate, 10 shepherd, okay, 11 resurrection, and the life, yeah, that's the raising of Lazarus, okay, John 11, 25, that's a good one. And then 14, way, ooh, there's a W in there, truth, life, and then 15, true vine. Okay, that's eight. All right, that's seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, five, six, seven. Okay, so those are the I am statements in the Gospel of John. Bread of life, light of the world, gate, shepherd, resurrection and life, way, truth, life, and true vine. Okay? You're welcome. There you go. Okay, we will get to those as we go. Obviously, we'll keep running into them. And we'll, we'll explain them as we go. So he is actually explaining now, he's going to explain the rest of the chapters what he means by saying, I am the bread of life. That's what he's going to do the rest of the chapter. And guess what everyone's going to say? Huh? No way. Yeah, they're going to, huh? And then, no, no, you can't, you can't be that. And he's going to say, I am. Right? Okay. So number three, what is the result of seeing and believing? Eternal life. Okay. The result of seeing and believing is eternal life. Now, that's phenomenal. That's amazing. Who are you seeing and believing to get eternal life? Jesus. Jesus. How can he claim such things? He's God. He doesn't look like God. He doesn't sound like God. Right? We all know what God sounds like, right? James Earl Jones. That's been established. Jesus doesn't talk like that. He doesn't sound like God. Does he look like God? No, he doesn't look like God. What does he look like? A person. Just a normal person. So, Here's the thing. In the Gospel of John, one of the major themes of the Gospel of John is the not seeing of God in Jesus. When you look at Jesus, what do you not see? Yahweh. You don't see him. Because what are you looking at? A person. And Yahweh says throughout the Old Testament, I am not a person. That's one of God's major claims to not being a person is that he says, I am not a person. If God is a person, then he's not God. He's a person. Well, God is not a person. He's God. So now there's a person saying, I am. And they say, no, you're not. You're a person. He goes, fine, I'm the bread of life. And they say, no, you're not. You're a person. And he goes, you have to eat my flesh. They go, that's disgusting. He goes, fine, you have to drink my blood. And they say, no. That's against God's command. We cannot eat the blood of strangled animals, let alone of other humans, okay? And Jesus is standing there going, this is what's up. If you do this, you get eternal life. And they're saying, no, 
That's blasphemy. So the seeing, is this going to ever happen with human eyes? Are your eyes ever going to interpret Jesus correctly? Only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because what's going to happen is at the end of the gospel, guess what's going to happen? One person is going to look at Jesus and say, my Lord and my God. And for the first time, seeing and believing will be brought together. Thomas. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are all those who do not see and yet believe. See, you are going to confess something you cannot see. I knelt next to, to some of you this morning and we did it. We stood in our pews and we said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world on the altar. And everybody would walk in and say, Where? You mean, you mean somewhere that I can't see? He said, no, 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 he's right there. Don't you see it? He, the pastor just put it in her mouth. No, he just put a wafer in there. He said, yeah, yeah, I understand, that's bread. Well, whatever. That's bread. <laughs> and they say, well, where's Jesus? He go right there. You mean he is the bread? You say, no, no, no. It's still bread. But it's his body. How's that working? You go, it's in with and under. They said, that doesn't make any sense. You said, that's what he said. That's what Jesus promised, and therefore we believe it. So it's a seeing that isn't with these eyes. It's with the Spirit teaching us to see with the eyes of faith. What does Paul say? We walk by faith and not by sight. See, there's a not seeing that is actually seeing. I know you all think I'm out of my mind, and that's fine. But Jesus agrees with me, so we'll get there. Is it, was it Paul or one of the uh, gospel writers that talk about, talks about sin against the Holy Spirit that can't be forgiven? Right, that's Jesus in, in the Synoptic Gospels. The, the, the un, only unforgivable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Okay, so if you start saying what the Holy Spirit is actually doing is satanic activity... That's blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Okay? And don't do that. Don't call the Holy Spirit Satan. That's bad. Because remember, Satan is the deceiver. He's, he's, he's always deceiving. The Holy Spirit is always telling the truth. Okay? First John says this. If you say that you're without sin, you're calling God a liar. You don't want to do that. Right? If you say without sin, you deceive yourself in the truth. It's not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just. See, not lying. He's not lying. God is not lying. He's faithful and just. And what will he do? He'll forgive our sins. So if you want to be deceitful, you can deny your sinfulness. And you will die forever in that sin. But if you want to be on the side of truth, which ends up with eternal life, then what do you do? You come before God and you confess. You repent. Right? Repentant sin comes before God and says, one of us is wrong. One of us has to change. Who is it? Me. Unrepentant says, repent, unrepentant sin comes before God and says, we disagree a different opinion. One of us needs a change and it's God. See? 
Now, if I think about this in our world, what is going on right now? We are saying this can't be a sin. Therefore, God's word has to right. It has to be wrong or it has to change. We have to reread it so that what I'm doing isn't a sin. See, that's unrepentant sin. Did God really say? And the answer is always, well, I'm going to find a way so that what I want to do is right. And what God says, we're going to change that. No, that's not faith. Faith is what we did this morning. You come before God and you say, I am wrong. In every way, shape, or form, I'm wrong. And the only hope I have is in your mercy in Christ Jesus. Right? And the result of this transaction is not just a walk away going, oh, good, I'm forgiven. I can go sin some more. No, renew me. Lead me to delight in your will and to walk in your ways. Because I'm wrong, you are right. That's seeing, seeing what these eyes will never see. Okay? So. It's tricky because even that repentance and wanting to change how you're acting is not something we can do on our own. It's only a gift of. It's, it's, we're, we're back to the Father drawing us, right? So, so why would a bunch of people show up one morning and repent of their sins? Because the Holy Spirit is working in us to, to do that to us, right? To bring us to this reality, to point us to Christ, to give us the faith, to give us the repentance. And how would we repent and change our sinful lives? Not because we're so smart and wonderful. By the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is, this is some of the questions we ask ourselves in the Lord's Supper, right? Do I desire to amend my sinful life and by the power of the Holy Spirit change that life, right? Do I desire God's Spirit working in me to result in this action? See, we never say it's me. We always say anything that's good that's happening here is because God is the one at work. Yeah? And we rejoice in that. We, say, we thank Him for that. This is a gift of grace. It, we'll get to this in a second, but um, I want you to just think this through for a second. Do you believe that obedience to God's will is a gift? See, that's what we're going for. We want our lives to be lives of obedience, not because we're, oh, we, we have to. No, because it's a gift. To live according to the will of God is a gift. That is the blessed way to live, is according to the will of God. Right? It's what we believe. Because God is good and gracious. Okay? So, oh, before we get off on this, just, just so you don't think I'm totally nuts. I am, but that's okay. Go to John chapter 9. We'll get there next year. Yeah, we, that's why we need to do it now, because it'll be a long time. Actually, go to John 10. It's easier. Just go to John 10, verse 1. Then go up three verses or four verses. Start at verse 39. John 9, 39 through 41. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who will and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What are we blind to? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. See? See? You want to learn to become blind so that you can truly see. 
because John 9 is the healing of the man born blind. And it starts with this question. Who sinned that this might happen? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. This is so that the glory of God might be revealed. So that you might see the glory of God. Where do you see the glory of God? In blindness. Who is the only one who can give sight to the blind? God. So what happens is, those of us who think we can see need to become blinded. Because our eyes are distracting us. Those who think we are really smart need to become stupid. Because our intellect is making it impossible for us to believe the word of God. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians. He's, we didn't get there this morning necessarily, but it says in 1 Corinthians that, that God rejoices in the <coughs> foolish things. You think you're so smart? You think you're so wise? Well, God's rejoicing in foolish things, and you're rejoicing in wisdom. What is your problem? You're not going to find God there. Eloquent words and, and impressive speech. That's not where God is. Where's God? He's in the humble things. Believe it or not, he's in not seeing. So then when the Holy Spirit teaches you how to see with the eyes of faith, what do you get? Eternal life. Okay? And this is what Lutheran schools are doing. They're teaching our children to see. See this whole world as God's. See everything you do as because of God's love for you in Christ Jesus. Right? See it. Because that's the truth. Don't be distracted. Don't listen to the lies. Listen to the truth of God's word and learn to see all of life in that perspective. That's the truth. Okay? <coughs> all right, number four. So what will happen on the last day? Raised up. Raised up. There will be... Now, this is important. Are you going to be raised up in your mind? Yeah, I mean, your mind will be raised. But is it just going to be inside of your head that you're going, oh, sometime there'll be this, this psychological resurrection? It'll be a physical, actual resurrection. Okay? When, now, this is, this, is, this is the church's teaching. That this, there will be a physical end to this world. Everything you know is going to come to an end. Jesus will physically return one day. And all people will be resurrected in their bodies. Not just in your mind, not just in your spirit, not just as an idea, not in some spiritual plane. You will be physically resurrected and you will physically live with God in his presence. That's the promise to all believers in Christ. All those who are outside of Christ will also be physically raised and they will live forever apart from the presence of God. Okay? So, this is important when we talk about people who have died in the faith. Is that it's, it's not just, well, they're spiritually now better or they live on in our hearts or whatever. No, 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 no. 
we lay them in the ground in the sure and certain hope of the day of resurrection of all flesh. And those who are in Christ, we know that when he returns, they will be raised and they will be with him forever. And so will we. Now, there are going to be some people who are alive when Jesus returns. What's going to happen to them? Yeah, we don't know. Somehow they're going to go from being alive on earth to all of a sudden just being alive with him in heaven, you know, wherever he is. And, and that transformation is going to happen. We just, it's not going to go the same way. It's not going to, have to bury, they're not going to have to fall over dead and then, wait, you know, he's just going to do it somehow. Okay? So that's, we don't know. But they're going to have the same reality. They're going to have a, a glorified flesh is the way the Bible talks, right? We're going to have an actual flesh. But this is the important thing I want to get across is that it's a fleshly eternity, we're not just floating around like spirit, or spirit things out there. No, it's a fleshly reality. The flesh is not evil that we're trying to get rid of. The flesh is the way God made us. And that's going to be true for all of eternity. Okay? Any thoughts or questions on that? Where is that? Oh, all over the place. So it says here... Um, should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then that same, that same language is, learned, is used to talk about Jesus' resurrection and the idea that he actually shows them his body. So this resurrection language is defined by the resurrection of Jesus as being a physical, fleshly resurrection. And then when you read all of Scripture to talk about the end times and the people living with God, they have bodies. They always have bodies. Okay? Think about, think about, you guys know this story. You guys know this one. Ezekiel, right? The Valley of Dry Bones. What does he do first? He actually resurrects, he resurrects their bodies. He's prophesied to the bones. And what happens? There's a great rattling sound, and they come together, bone to bone, and sinew, and flesh. And they're standing before God, a mighty army. But they're all resurrected bodies with no spirit. So then he prophesies to the spirit and he fills the bodies with breath and they live. So this is, this is one of the metaphors for heaven is that we are going to be like that valley of dry bones resurrected in our flesh with the spirit of God being that which enlivens us. Okay? Does that make sense? And, and please do this. Read the scriptures. When you find talk, things talking about the resurrection, you will find physical realities. A lot of them will sound a lot like the creation, where God made Adam and Eve physically, not just an idea, not just a spiritual thing. He physically made them and breathed into the breath of life. Does that make sense? Okay. So it's also in John 3 where he says, um, where Jesus says there will be a resurrection of of the just and the unjust, and those who have done good to eternal life, those who are evil would cast out. So this metaphor gets repeated over and over. So before Jesus' second coming, when people die yep. in faith, yep. uh, is there a physical aspect? Sure. To, I mean, do they physically enter heaven? That's a big question. So this is called the interim state. 
This is why I'm a fan of Kansas State, because I can go to Kansas. The interim state, I don't know anything about, but the Kansas State, good start. Okay? But the interim state is a time between when a, when a Christian dies and the time of Christ's return. Right? So I always use my grandma as an example because she died and she's real and she was a Christian. So December 6, 1981, my grandma died. That's not a metaphor. She did. Okay? So we went to Kansas and we buried her in the ground. Right? I can go there and dig up her bones. I won't. That'd be weird. But I could. Okay? There's a headstone that says her name and everything. Right? And my grandpa because he died later. He decided he died May 23rd, 1991. Um, so you can go there and dig up their bones. I believe they are with Christ. Which one's true? Both. Which one does the Bible talk about? Both. So when a Christian dies, what do we say about them? We say that they are with Christ. We say that they are with Christ. Now we say, is that the end? We say, oh, no, no, no. And with all the saints, we await the day of resurrection of all flesh. See, we, we, don't, we don't make the interim state the end, but we don't discount the fact that they're with Christ just because we're waiting for the end. We have to hold both. And we, but we don't want to get too specific because we don't know stuff. The Bible doesn't put narrow definitions on all these things, so we don't either. We just say, those who have died in Christ are in Christ. See, this is the problem. Whenever you start talking about this stuff, you, you get weird conversations going on. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. Always a good idea. He walks up to the tomb of Lazarus and he says, those who believe in me will never die. Well, you're here because he's dead. So is Jesus lying? No. There's a seeing in all this that only the Spirit can teach us to do. We believe that Christ is stronger than death. And we believe his promise that he will never, ever leave us, even in death, right? You believe that? So what do we say? We say crazy stuff. We're like, well, that person is with Christ. And we're going to put their body in the grave and say they're absent from the body, but present with the Lord. We're like, what does that mean? We say, let's review. They're with Christ. What does that look like? You go, I don't know. So you say, well, what are we doing here? You say, well, we're waiting for the resurrection of all flesh. But I thought they were with Christ. Yes. How do you balance those two? Then? You don't. You just say, I'm going to confess both because it's true. Both are true. Does that make sense? So then Jesus goes on, the conversation goes on, and, and, and he says, uh, you, you know, I'm going to raise up your brother and... and, and and Martha goes, yeah, I know it's all going to happen the last day. And Jesus says, last day, I am the resurrection and the life. See, he moves it. Even the focus on the last day, he moves it to him. And this is the greatest comfort we have, is that those who die are with Christ. They are in Christ. Right? They are. You don't need to doubt that. So are they suffering? No. Have they received the full promise of the resurrection? 
That day hasn't happened yet, so we're going to keep looking forward to it. Right? Do we say they don't have those things? No, because the Bible doesn't talk that way. So we're just going to let it be. Just, just say they're with Christ. And we're looking forward to the day of resurrection. It's not either or, it's both and. So what happens when an unbeliever dies? What's their interim state? They are... But, what, but they haven't been judged yet, so how does that... Same thing. Same judged, thing. Anyway. Judgment Day hasn't happened for the believer yet either. But we believe they are with Christ. So and so they die Christ, apart from Christ. And that, that's the state they existed until the resurrection of all flesh when they will be judged and they will be eternally. But the rich man and Lazarus makes it seem like the rich man is some, somewhere where he's parched and thirsty. Yeah, so this isn't good, right? This ain't good. <laughs> no matter how you define it, this ain't good. And no matter how you define this, it is good. Okay? That's why I say this is what we talk about. We don't try to put definitions on things to make it make sense to us. We simply say, this person's with Christ. Is that good? That is the definition of good. Right? That's bliss. That's awesome. Are they lacking anything if they're with Christ? No. And yet, there is a day coming in which Christ will come and physically raise up all people. We have to confess both. Does that make sense? Any, any thoughts or questions? You wanna, anybody want to add over here? Okay. You know, a lot of people say that the spirit needs the body. Right. So one of the metaphors the church has always used to talk about this is the metaphor of soul and body. That the body... Um, the body and the soul are separated at death and the soul goes and the body is buried in the ground. And that's one of the most prominent metaphors in scripture and that the church has always used to talk about this. Um, but, but remember, what is the scriptural definition of death? Oh. What's that? Oh. No, that's, that's the eternal, that's second death. Oh. Right. What is the actual definition of death? Sin. That's exactly right. Death is because of sin. Okay, that's what you've got to understand. And that's really the point of all this is once a believer has died in the flesh, they're now done with sin. And they are with Christ. When an unbeliever dies, is their sin removed from them? No. So what's going to happen? They just keep dying. Matter of fact, they're going to die again. Okay, because their sin still is reality for them. They're separated from Christ. But those of us who are in Christ, your sin has been forgiven. It's removed. It's gone. So you get life, not death. Okay, so yeah, one of the ways the church has historically talked about this is separation of body and soul is, is what happens at death, physically. That's kind of the physiological idea of what happens at death. But remember, that's even a little interesting because... We talk this way. It's not as prominent as it used to be. It used to be that the way you determine whether or not a person is dying, is alive or dead is you listen for breath. So remember, the word for breath and spirit and soul are all the same word. Okay, one of the Hebrew words that's interpreted as soul is actually spirit or breath. 
So we don't know if, if when it says because the soul has departed from the body, it could just mean they're not breathing anymore. That's one way to talk about it. They're not breathing anymore. Right? You guys ever read the poem by John Donne called The, For- the Malediction Forbidding Morning? Seriously? You need to read John Donne. <clears throat> okay? But he actually starts the poem like this. He says, when we're all standing around a, a person who's dying, some will say, oh, he's gone. And some will say, no, 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 he's not. Because they see him take a last breath. And they're actually trying to figure out if he's dead or not based on the presence of the spirit. Okay? So this is one of the ways that we talk about it is the spirit has departed. Does that make sense? So it's, this is one of the ways we handle this thing is we kind of talk about this in terms. But what we really want to understand is that this is the important thing. Now, Paul tells us how to be in Christ. Or how to be with Christ. Or how to be clothed with Christ. Don't you know that all of you who were baptized have put on Christ? Don't you know you were baptized into Christ's death and into his resurrection? So what happens to a baptized person is they are in Christ. So what do we say at a funeral? They're baptized. So where are they? They're in Christ. Right? They're in Christ. So God the Father who created this body, God the Son who redeemed this body, and God the Holy Spirit who (coughs) sanctified this flesh. Keep it until the day of resurrection. Right? So we're, we're confessing all of this at once. Does that make any any questions or thoughts on that? This is why I don't go very far in John 6. There's a lot. So you're saying you think that in the interim state that we actually are physical. I'm saying we're with Christ. Okay. <laughs> I refuse to I refuse to define it because I don't okay. the Bible doesn't de- de- give us clear explanation of these things. And the church has actually wrestled with this over time. So we're just going to confess what the scriptures say. Okay. Pastor Zagor. There's only one place that might talk about the body, the body being separated from the spirit. Mm-hmm. And it's probably talking about James 2.26. Right, exactly. And so it's always best for us not to try to talk about the spirit apart from the body. Yeah, and that's, that's a good point. So, so you want to read? Do you have James up there on your phone? I don't. Okay, does somebody look up James 2.26? Is that what it is? 26, yeah. 2.26, yeah. This, that's the classic, classic the proof text. Is this Is dead. Right. And that's that's his comparison, right? But see, even there, it could just simply be breath. Probably, probably is in James. James two twenty six. Whereas the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Right. So see, he's using it as a <laughs> metaphor, and and but this is important because I want I want to talk about this because this is an important point is. We are not, we don't see humanity in dualistic terms. Are you spirit or are you flesh? The answer is yes. yes. God created you body and soul or body and spirit or 1 Thessalonians 5.23, 
body, soul, and spirit. It, the scriptures confess it all these ways. But the point is they're always together as that's who you are. You're not an eternal soul that happens to be living in this body bag. That's actually what some people say, by the way. And the goal is to get rid of this flesh that's kind of hanging on so we can be free. No, that's not it. Because God created you body and spirit, body and soul. That's you. You are body, soul. You're not one or the other. You are both. So if death is separation, then resurrection is bringing back together. That's why that metaphor has been used. Does that make sense? All right? Is that kind of where you're going with that? The, the, the inability to separate? I, yeah, I just, I just don't like talking about any separation at all. Yeah. God never, God never talks about it, so why should we? Why should we? Right. That's why I, I go this way. <laughs> just go that way. But let's, let's just real quick, just so we're all on the same page. When you go to a funeral, and I am going to one tomorrow, the most comforting thing you can say is not they're in my memory or they're in my heart or you know, they're, they've left and we'll, then they're in the, another room. Don't worry about them. They're fine. Those aren't Christian things to say. What do Christians confess? Christ. The resurrection of Jesus. Right? Confess the resurrection of Jesus to those who are suffering. Because Christ has been raised, we know too that we also will be raised with him. I can promise you that those who are in Christ Jesus will always be in Christ Jesus. Right? For this we rejoice. Baptism promises kept. Right? We can say that with certainty. We're not making stuff up. We're confessing what Jesus himself told us. If you believe and see, right, what do you get? Eternal life. Well, at the death of a Christian, what do we say? The Jesus, their Savior, their Lord, their God promises to them eternal life. So we don't mourn as those who have no hope, as Paul says, but we, we look forward to the sure and certain hope of the resurrection in Christ. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, well, like we, you know, we got through some. Got through a section. We got through some. Okay, now, the problem is next week we'll, we'll enter the, into the hard part of the, of the chapter. That was the easy part. Now it gets difficult. Okay, let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, it is in your Son alone that we see eternal life. So teach us to see with eyes of faith that we might trust solely in our Savior Jesus to be our God and Lord, that we might live lives of repentance turning to your will, that by the power of your Spirit we might live lives according to your desires for us, that we might love with your love, that we might rejoice with the joys you give to us, and that we might always return to the cross of Jesus for forgiveness and life. We ask us all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.